that we pray together. So Lord, may my mouth speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart bring understanding that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning to awaken our hearts, expand our minds and shape our identity in you we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last week, if you were here, you may remember, if you weren't here and you haven't caught up, we're, we're starting to look at this book, the most difficult book in the Bible for many Christians to understand, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And as part of that message last week, I said three of the most helpful things that I found out about the book of Revelation, what they were, with the hope that if I found them helpful, you might find them helpful as well. But if you don't, don't worry about that. One of those things was this, to know what the word Revelation means. And of course, if you were here last week, you all know what the word Revelation means, don't you? Or you might have forgotten, basically. But if you weren't here, just for the benefit of those who weren't here, let's just explain what the word revelation means. And the important thing is, you know, I got an email from someone just yesterday who said, oh, thank you, please can I order one of those books on the book of revelations? It's singular, not plural. And in fact, the, in the Greek New Testament, the first three words say this, revelation Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is the word apocalypsis. It comes from two Greek words, apo, meaning away from, and calypsis, a veil. So the image that what this picture that we're trying to see in this book is as an unveiling, if you like, of pulling a curtain back or a curtain being raised to show who Jesus really is. This is why we're, we're using this curtain each week. We've brought it back. I'm not quite sure with me hobbling how I'm going to get it in the car in the middle of the service, but we'll see how we get on. And we're pulling back the curtain each week to either reveal some sort of object or some sort of image that helps us understand who Jesus is that John's talking about or what the situation was that the people were facing at that time. And so this week in Act 2, what we're going to do is we're going to pull back this curtain three times. But on each occasion, what we're going to find is, what might be for some, a very familiar backdrop. Maybe a very familiar backdrop of the holiday that you might have been on. Or that you might be on at this very present time. I know at least two people in our church congregation who are presently in the Aegean Sea. Quite literally, they're on Patmos. And you can see from that handout that I've given you this morning, you can see the backdrop for all of what we're going to look at this morning. We're in the Aegean Sea and modern day Turkey. So here's scene one, if you like, as we pull back the curtain to look at what we might see before us this morning. Patmos, if you haven't been, is, is, is a rocky island. It's roughly the size of Jersey. And there we meet, if you like, the writer of the book, John. And John's there. He's living in exile. He's been banished to this island. And he's writing to seven churches, these seven churches that you can see in bold, Ephesus, right the way through to Laodicea. And he knows each of these churches. And just like he's suffering... To some extent, these seven churches are suffering. They're facing difficulties. They're facing persecutions for their faith, which they're 
patiently enduring in the present while living with the future hope that God will deliver them. And literally, it just happens like this. One Sunday, maybe one Sunday morning, John receives this vision. He starts describing it in verse 10 by saying, I was in the Spirit. And of course, for those who were here for the book of Ezekiel, you're suddenly maybe starting to think he's using the language that Ezekiel did when he referred to the visions that he received. And what we see of this vision is it comes from God through Jesus via an angel to John. And he's to pass on this vision to these seven churches. And it's a vision that we keep coming back to each week of the majestic vision of the ascended, exalted, risen Jesus. That's why we've got the crown there, first of all, for the first image to remember from last week. The risen, ascended, exalted Jesus displaying, if you like, in, the verse, in those verses from chapter 1, the threefold Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. And how do we know that, you may ask? It's a really good question, isn't it? How have I just gone from that to suddenly just kind of ramping it up a bit? Where did all that come from? Because it's a vision soaked in the scriptures of the Old Testament. If you were here last week, you may remember another of the most helpful things that I've found about the book of Revelation is to know it, to understand it. You have to know and understand the Old Testament. Why? Because it's clear that John the writer knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He, uses, he doesn't use any Old Testament quotes. It doesn't make it that easy for us. He kind of uses what we call allusions. If you like, he takes an, an object or an image, or he uses a word or a phrase that would be so synonymous with the Old Testament that those original hearers would have understood what he was getting at. But perhaps 21 centuries later in Western Britain, sometimes we might need reminding or jogging along, or sometimes we need to learn to, to catch up. So let me just give you, I'm just going to give you one example here. The best thing about this handout is this. It's not the map. It's not the chart. It's all the Bible references. You see, I'm not responsible for your spirituality. I'm really not. You are. And the best thing you can do perhaps this week is to take this with you, to take a Bible, either on your phone or whatever, and start looking up these references and start to think, where's he got them from? Or where's the vision that John's seeing? Where's he got this from? And suddenly as you start to look at these other references from the Old Testament, you, you start to see how the image that we're seeing is just one that's soaked in the Old Testament. So let's look at, look, let's look at one of those things. I don't know if we can, can we pull up verse 14 or verse 13? The one that says that John sees Jesus wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. I don't know if we can, if we can do that, but if you're following in a Bible, you'll see it there. He sees Jesus and he describes him as a, with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. 
And of course, who wore a long robe with a golden sash around his chest in the Old Testament? Well, it was Aaron and the high priest that followed. It was the description of the clothes that he was to wear. There's the priest bit. But also those robes were worn by kings. Saul, John wore those robes. And also for some of you who like the book of Daniel, you'll know that straight away that John is just lifting a few words of Daniel's vision, describing exactly how he saw a son of man as the messenger of God. And so all of a sudden you start to see the prophet, the priest and the king being displayed through this vision that those original hearers would have clicked straight away. That's who he started to talk about. You'll find other allusions in there as well. You'll find another one if you want to watch the video, if it's worked from this morning's 8.30 service, you'll find another one in there. But go away. Go away and look for yourself this week. You'll find out so much more. And it'll be so much more empowering if, if you do it rather than I tell you. And with that, we, we close the curtain. But we keep the crown there for all to see because we never lose sight of the majestic risen ascended Jesus all the way through this book and so we we come now to to scene two if you're like we're going to move away from Patmos to the mainland we kind of could see I was thinking about this this morning I was thinking you know this could be the Channel Islands couldn't they no, we won't work out which one's Guernsey and which one's Alderney and which one's Sark. And, and this could be rather like, like south of here, like the French coast. You know, one place could be San Marlo, one could be Dinard, one could be Dinon. I thought we could have Mont Saint-Michel in there somewhere and I'll let you work out which church you think is Mont Saint-Michel as we, as we go along. But we could, we could do that, couldn't we? We could just play around with the map. But here's a few things that I want us to understand from scene two. We're going to look at it very briefly once more. We're going to open the curtain and we're going to find that it's a letter or a scroll because this is how John would have wrote his letters down. This is how he would have wrote down the book of Revelation. And so as we, we look at these letters, once more look at your chart on your handout. Once more, here's some more homework for you. You've got it all there. Go and spend the time this week looking at how John's letter writing is so similar that he, he writes and follows the same structure in his letters to each of the churches, saying different things. But you can, you can see it all there, and you've got all the references, and you can start to, to plot it all together. But I want to tell you three very quick things about these letters before we move specifically to the one on the church at Laodicea. They're individual. The angel writes to the church of Ephesus, or to Smyrna, or to Pergamum, or Thyatira. They're individual, but they're not private. They're not just meant for that church at all, because at the end of, as we heard with the one in Laodicea, it says, let anyone who hears what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And you only get the complete picture of what Jesus is saying to any church by understanding all seven of them and taking all the messages from each of the seven churches. In that sense, what 
we're getting here is this image that what John wants us to grasp is that for any church in any time, those seven messages are for every church. And so with that, we're going to close the curtain because we're going to look at scene three. You know, just as we, we look at these, what you could see is the other places you can see on there, they have churches as well. So obviously there's, there's Colossae from the book of Colossians that got a whole, whole book, but it's these seven churches and they were linked by a road. And so we're going to come now and we're going to open the curtain once more. And as we open the curtain once more, we're going to look at three particular objects. Here's the first thing. Let's think about the church in Laodicea as we begin. And we come, don't we, to two of the most famous verses mentioned about the church of Laodicea in the whole of the book of Revelation. In fact, almost in the whole of the book of the Bible where the one where Jesus says that he's going to spit them out of his mouth, which in effect meant that he was going to vomit them. Spit was the polite way of putting it. And the second one was this, was this picture that we might have seen in other places of Holman Hunt with Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Two of the most famous verses in the whole of the book and two of the most misunderstood. So let's try and understand what it all means. Here's what we know about the place of Laodicea. Here's what every history book will tell you. They can be religious, they can be secular. What every history book will tell you about Laodicea is exactly what Jesus said in verse 17. They were rich, they were prosperous, and they thought they needed nothing. That was the place, and that was the church. It's riches, if you like, and this is why I've got this. It's a wonderful thing. It's great, one of these, isn't it? Bank of Sterling, one million pounds. Wouldn't we all like to have one of these, but kind of like a bit worthless, really, as will come on. But they were rich. Their richness came from where they were situated. In part, they were on a strategic trade route that moved north to south and east to west from coast further along. It meant that through all that activity, all those people coming, it became a thriving finance centre. The banks just thrived. The wealth was just enormous in Laodicea. This is how wealthy it was. Three decades before, it suffered from an earthquake. Now, when everyone else was asking for outside help for an earthquake, they asked for none. They just rebuilt the city themselves. It was famous and it was rich for that. It was famous and it was rich because it had a very good medical school. In fact, it was particularly good for the healing of the eyes and the ears. And then another thing was, was that actually the other reason why it was famous, another reason why it was rich was because it was a fashion center. It was a bit like Milan. They developed this finest cloth that created some wonderful clothes. And so everybody wanted to go there to buy their clothes. Because they didn't have the internet. 
And so for those three reasons, if you like, the church of Laodicea was this rich church. But riches and prosperity kind of bring dangers, don't they? They can be good, but they bring dangers. Smugness. Arrogance. If you like, delusion. Self-reliance. In effect, what the church had done in Laodicea was they'd locked Jesus out of the building. You see, for all of Laodicea's wealth, they had a major problem. Their water supply. You see, this is why Jesus starts to use the words that, that he does. And maybe you're starting to think, well, Jesus said hot was good. Yes, I could understand why Jesus was said hot was good. But he also said cold was good. But that lukewarm was good for nothing. Why would cold be better than lukewarm? I can understand why hot. What's Jesus saying? And he's talking about Laodicea's water supply. You see, because Laodicea's water supply came from Hierapolis, six miles north. They had beautiful healing springs, hot healing springs, so that when the water flowed, it was wonderful. By the time the water got to Laodicea, through an underground aqueduct system, it was lukewarm. And also, it had got calcified through the pipes, meaning that it was only good for one thing, quite literally, vomiting. Whereas Colossae, six miles east, if you like, had excellent cold water, because it came from a different supply. So Jesus is saying, cold is good, hot is good, but lukewarm is good for nothing. And those, that's the image that Jesus is taking that those hearers would have known because they knew all about their, their water supply. And it's a damning indictment, isn't it? A damning indictment that Jesus, the one who, who speaks like the sound of many waters, as we heard in the church vision, just says that he's about to vomit them out of his mouth. It wasn't the state of their faith that made them sick. It was just that they weren't being fruitful. Of also, if we think about the context, Jesus, the one who was described, wasn't he, as someone who speaks like the sound, like the sharpness of a two-edged sword, now wields the blade as he moves from the general before getting to the jugular of the specific. You think you need nothing? Well, you don't realize. How does he describe them? Wretched, pitiable. You say you're rich, I say you're poor. You say you're a center for excellence for eye surgery. Well, I say you can't even see how blind you are. You say you're a fashion center. Well, I say you're like the emperor with new clothes. That's a really harsh judgment. And they might just be thinking then, well, let's just turn the lights off and go home. And then what follows is one of the most loving promises you will ever find in the whole of the New Testament. 
Never mind this book. What follows is that if they'll change, that you find that there's this loving promise of hospitality and blessing from God. It's that other misunderstood verse in verse, verse 20, you know, maybe through the image we've seen here from Holman Hunt of Jesus standing, knocking at the door. Not of a non-believer's life, but you could take it that way, but of his church because they'd locked him out. And he's, he's knocking at the door, waiting for them to open it because there's only you could only open it from the inside and so I wonder as we close this morning as the vision says let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches I wonder what the spirit of the ascended risen Jesus might be saying to each of us this morning where is God knocking if you like at the door of our lives maybe it might be from scene one to encourage you to build you up maybe it might be from scene one and two to go and take the and explore these passages for yourself maybe it might be from scene three that there's that warning there to someone to stop locking him out of the door of his life or the door of his church because we're living in illusion and he wants you to remember that promise that he brings still today that anyone who opens the door anyone who changes there is this tremendous promise of God's hospitality and his blessing shall we pray